Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast, episode 938. My interview with William O. Stevens, discussing writing, stoicism, and happiness. Enjoy. G'day, William. Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Lee? I'm doing good, mate. Good. Whereabouts are you in the world? Omaha, Nebraska, about as uh, far from uh, any ocean you can get in North America. Okay, nice. <laughs> and what's the weather doing over there? Uh, it's a pretty typical August day here, uh, warm and uh, and muggy, pretty humid, but uh, didn't stop me from playing a little tennis this morning like I like to do. Okay, you got to get a bit of tennis going on. Yeah. You're, um, the uh, the U.S. Open's on soon, hey? Or has it started already? Uh, another couple weeks, yeah. Another still, two weeks, I think. Still yeah. going forward then. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be different this year, but um, uh, at least some of the top players will be there, not all of them. No, there's definitely a few of the Aussies have, have pulled out uh, for obvious yeah. reasons. So fair enough, too. What... Um, so what is your routine like in the morning? Are you got are you a routine guy or? Yeah, well, uh, my routine's about to change next Tuesday uh, because I'm returning to the classroom. I've been on sabbatical from my university since the end of spring semester 2019. So that would have been early May of 2019. So the last uh, 15 months or so, I've been in the bliss, the academic bliss of having the freedom to read and write and spend my days and weeks as I see fit, trying to get some ideas down on paper and edit some publications. And I've had success with that this last year. A couple of book projects, several papers. um, And uh, prior to classes, anyway, I've had the freedom to play tennis in the morning or the evening. And I've certainly indulged in that. Yeah. to get a little little fitness in. Um, so, yeah, I'll have a new routine. I have a Tuesday-Thursday teaching schedule. I like to pile up all three of my courses that I'm teaching on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I teach, take a break, teach another class, take a break, teach the third class, and then come home. Yeah, very nice. Um, how do you find the, you know, having, what is it, 15 months, did you say? Yeah. Is that is that saying that's consistent or regular, or is it just a one-off for the sabbatical leave? Yeah. Uh, so sabbatical and Sabbath means seven. So um, every seven years uh, at many universities, not all of them, but um, many colleges and universities allow their faculty to apply for a sabbatical research leave. Usually, faculty use it to spend doing writing and, and uh, research. Um, some faculty will do different kinds of faculty development projects, um, maybe developing a new course or revamping an old course or something like that. Yeah. But I've had plenty of writing projects each time I've, come around, I've, I've become eligible for a sabbatical leave. So, yeah, so I, you know, for a big project, if you're trying to get a book written or get a book finished or whatever, you need big blocks of time uninterrupted handy. so that, yeah. that's that's what they're for so yeah this will be this will be my last sabbatical before uh i retire at the end of this fall semester in november oh, yeah. before thanksgiving yeah 
So then I'll be on sabbatical permanently. Permanently, <laughs> permanent sabbatical. What? Um, and you've written a fair few books, which I want to delve into, um, all, all around you know philosophy and stoicism, I suppose. Um, your your writing, like when you have this sabbatical, how do you how do you structure your day so you get the writing done? I mean, there are there challenges that you face, or have you got it sort of down pat where you you block out time and just write? Yeah, I um well the the routine that I kind of fell into um was to try to get some exercise in the morning most mm. of the time and then um kind of collect my thoughts and and sort through some emails professional and and other you know non-academic emails other tasks like that get that out of the way um and then have a little lunch and then in the afternoon that tends to be historically that's been my best time for um putting my thoughts down uh in prose so i i tend to do most of my writing um in the afternoon late afternoon sometimes into the early evening okay um and by then and then it's then it's dinner time and i i can help my spouse make some dinner and we can relax in the evening and then try it again the next day do it again uh, are there any challenges for you doing that routine consistently every day? Do you find it yeah. sometimes becomes a bit monotonous? Things, things, yeah. So, you know, when you're on a roll, the writing is easier. Um, when you're kind of slogged down and, and not making the kind of progress you want, then um, what I try to do is uh, turn to a different kind of writing task because I've got um, as I said, there the, the are emails that I have to sort through. There are communications with other other scholars. I try to keep in touch with my co-author, um, who uh, I'm working with on this commentary on Epictetus's handbook, um, and, and other professional contacts, such as yourself, interviews. I've had a number of those the last uh, uh, seven months or so, yeah. seven, eight months or so. Um, and so if I'm bogged down, then I try to change things up and I can take a break and do some reading. And when you're doing research, you know, I, I find that you want to try to work out a nice balance between the reading and the writing Yeah. and, and other things that will intrude, uh, will be again, non-intellectual matters. So I, I have a small rental property and I've had to deal with tenants um, moving out and and repairs and that sort of thing. So that can take me away from what I'd most like to do with my time when I'm disciplined, yeah. getting a c- couple good hours of writing in every day. Um, but, uh, you know, balancing the exercise with the family time, with the academic work, with the, you know, household chores and, and other non-academic tasks that's the kind of balance you want to have. It's a good, good mix to have. Keeps me, you know, physically moving around. Keeps me intellectually lively. So if I have those different, you know, four kinds of ingredients, you know, each day or most every day, then I can be elastic. Some days, if I'm having a really good productive day, then I can postpone doing these chores or those tasks. And um, if I'm not, then I can pick up the slack by helping out more around the house and pulling some weeds in the yard and playing with my cats, that sort of thing. Yeah. So after 
after a week's worth, you know, generally that works out to a, a pretty good balance overall most of the time, at least during the sabbatical. The challenge when I'm back in the classroom is I'll always know what day of the week it is. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not sure when I'm on sabbatical, um, which is kind of a good thing too. How do you Except go? Um, how, what, what's your secret to balance? Like finding that balance? How have you? Because it's 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 something that's sort of ongoing for me, and, and I sort of switch one way and then I go the next way. You know, bring balance. yeah. Well, you 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 do have to be willing to kind of guard your time at the computer. So if you've got a writing project. Um, or, or there's a book you're reading and you want to get through it. Um, it, it. It can work to block off a regular period of your day if your schedule allows that um, and try to stick to that. Um, that. That generally, because then you have the expectation, okay, it's you know, two to five. This is when I'm going to be alone in my, in my room working, uh, either reading, writing, whatever. And other tasks I either have to do before that or after that, but I mm. won't let that intrude in the, my designated time. I tend to be a little bit more flexible than that. Um, and one thing that's kind of uh, a little maybe even stoic technique is um, it's good to get up and move around periodically even when you are sitting and writing for hours at a time, right? So I have uh, – I will get a very uh, – I'll get stiffness in my lower back. Yeah. If I'm really engrossed in writing, and sometimes I forget to get up and move around. Right. Um, so the pain in my back reminds me, okay, Bill, you've been sitting too long. Yeah. It's time to, to get time up to and move around and go downstairs. And, you know, I can do that. And I also will have, you know, a cat that will come to my door and she'll scratch or meow. And I'll let her come in and I'll, you know, pet her a little bit and then kind of usher her out so I can get back to work. So. How is that kind um, of stoic? You said it's sort of stoic. Oh, well, taking, you know, so, you know, uh, having a, a small spinal abnormality, as I do, um, you know, you would think that would be a minus. That would be uh, a kind of latation. Right. But the stove is to take something like that and not as a hindrance or an obstacle, but rather as a challenge, as an opportunity. Right. And so for me, that reminds me that I don't have back pain very often at all if I move around every day. And so, as I said, that's why for me, getting up in the morning, my back's going to be stiff because I've been horizontal for seven, eight hours. And so after breakfast, that's the best time for me to get out and go for a walk. So if I don't have yeah. a, a tennis match lined up, I'll go for a walk after breakfast and it's, you know, it's the cooler part of the day before it gets really hot and I'll walk for three, three and a half miles, something like that. And then I feel relaxed. And when I'm yeah. physically relaxed, having exercise, then I've taken care of my back and then I can sit down and focus my yeah. thoughts and do some writing. Um, and similarly, um, other times when I get up and try to write first thing in the morning, um, generally my back doesn't like it because as I said, you know, I've been sleeping and horizontal. And so then to go right to a sitting position for mm. 45 minutes to an hour, that's not best for my back. I've learned that, you know, a little movement, a little exercise right after breakfast is good. And then I can put in some work and then maybe take a break and move around a little yeah. bit and then come back. So yeah. that's how I try to take the, the challenge of a little lower back pain and 
and cope with it, right? To Make use that. it as a bit of an opportunity. Yeah, Exactly. That's a call to do some exercise. That's the call to move around and loosen it up. And having yeah. done that, then I feel good about myself and I'm more able to focus and be productive at the computer writing. I like it. What do you do when you go for a walk? Do you do you plug into some headphones or do you just walk and be with nature? I like to be with nature. We, we've got a lot of tall old trees in our neighborhood. We're close to uh, kind of in between two different parks that are just a block away, block or two away. And so I pick out my route and I like to, you know, have my ears open and listen to the Do you the go birds. the same sort of route every day? I, I often do, yeah. yeah. I, I, I tend to fall, find myself falling into the same route that I take because then I know the distance. And I like watching the wildlife. You know, I, okay. I, I see, sometimes I see rabbits. One day I saw a gopher. Um, I see, certainly see birds. Mm. Um, so there, there's, there's some decent wildlife in our residential neighborhood and, uh, yeah, I like to feel the breeze and, you know, try to be in the moment when I'm exercising. Yeah. I I was just going to ask, like, do you find yourself, you know, do you, do you sort of have a focus during your walk? Cause some people, including myself, we might, you know, go through some affirmations. We might look at the day ahead. Yeah, uh, exactly. we often think about. I'm a future thinker, so I often think about what's happening and what the future holds. And yeah. rather than well, rather than being the moment, I get just quite distracted, actually. Um, yes. So, so I, I yeah, I'm, I'm not terribly strict with myself when it comes to being, you know, in a sort of meditative space. So, yeah, I'll think about. I can think through about you know paper I'm working on or uh, tasks that I'm going to do when I get back, but I try to enjoy the moment as I'm living in it, even when I'm also thinking about something I'm writing on, something I'm writing about or tasks that I need to do or puzzling through a problem or a concept that I need to sort out in one of the papers I'm working on. So yeah, uh, I think find, there's any I problem with that, helps with that. I find the walking helps with your thinking. Often. It does. It absolutely does. Yeah. yeah. And I think in, especially in the morning when you, when you go for it or, or like you said, during the day, if you feeling a bit uh, lump or, or stuck or stiff. Yeah. Uh, that's walks through certainly refreshing. I, I sort of sometimes wonder whether, um, you know, maybe I'll put too much pressure on myself, but, you know, sometimes it's just always constantly thinking about what's happening in the day and what I'm working on and this and that and, you know, what's coming up rather than really enjoying that moment. And then you try and, you know, force yourself to enjoy the moment and clear those thoughts out. And that comes then a, a bit of a burden as well. Because I, I think it's okay to you know plan and, and think about the things that are happening. Yes, but I but I like to see. I mean, in the summertime, there's there's lots of greenery. There's great foliage to mm. watch. In my neighbors' yards, the different flowering plants that they have and the wildlife. I mean, I I enjoy soaking that in too, because yeah. you know I it, it's healthier. I mean, they've done studies, so you know even half an hour, twenty minutes, half an hour of walking a couple times a week out in nature. Even I remember one study about trees and the three-dimensionality of trees. And the finding was that walking outside where you can observe trees is good for your for your mental health. Psychologically it's good because the three-dimensional spatiality of a tree stimulates mm. the mind in beneficial ways that you don't mm. get when you're sitting in a room, when you're in a box with four walls, you don't get that yeah. kind of three-dimensional stimulation of your, you know, visual cortex that that helps you 
you know, think well and, and, you know, boost the immune system or whatever it is. So I'm, I'm a big believer yeah. in, in daily exercise. That's what works for me. So to get that, get that in every day means, okay, that's taken care of. And now the rest of the day yeah. I can be sedentary and think and write and read and move as needed. But I've gotten, I've gotten that good motion, physical motion, uh, taken care of. So that, that Take really works of, yeah. for my schedule. I think it's it's actually uh, you know with with eyesight in general have a being outside in nature is much better for your eyesight, and I think the deterioration of eyesight you know in 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 humans is probably much because we are more indoors and and less outdoors. Yes, and and the screen time right you you can't just max out on whether it's a computer screen or a television. You can't just do hours and hours and hours of that every day without it taking no. a toll. So it's got to hey yeah. And with your just another question on your writing and and how you incorporate incorporate that with research, is there any particular style you have? Like, do you do a load of research and then just do a load of writing, or do you write research, write research? You know, is there any technique or, or strategy yeah. you have? So, um, for for papers, if I get an idea for a paper, um, I chart out uh, in my in my head anyway an outline for what I want to tackle. And yeah. then, um, then I'll start to, you know, figure out what's how many what sections of the paper I'm going to want. Like, how is this going to break down? How's the argument going to break down? What are the different pieces or parts of the argument? How I'm going to sequence that? What texts am I going to look at? Right? Because I typically focus on one author or another. I've written some pieces on on all of the Roman Stoics with respect to one topic. Um, so I do that occasionally, but, but even then, you know, I can figure out a structure for it. Um, and so then once I know kind of what my plan is, then, and, and I know the outline of, of how I want to structure my argument, then for each piece, I'm, then I need to do the research to see what other people have written on those concepts or ideas, that argument, that topic, and see um, what their take is. Yeah. on each piece. And then uh, I generate, you know, from that, I, I kind of, well, already have a decent idea of at least some scholars, some publications I'll need to look at, books or articles. So then I'll build my bibliography from there. And then as mm. you read the specific articles or book chapters on the topics that are relevant to to your paper, then they will reference other scholars. And then you'll get more references you can add to the bibliography and look for more things there. The process can go on and on and on, right? Depending You've on definitely got a process. <laughs> how big the scope of your project is. Um, but at some point, you know, you got to make a judgment, at least in my case, I make a judgment about, okay, I've got enough input from this group of scholars on this range of topics to work into my paper so I can uh, you know, drop the little breadcrumbs along the path, indicating, okay, this is what this other scholar has said about this point. Here's a relevant point on this aspect. Um, but, but always, I try to stay focused on what my contribution is. So what argument am I going to try to make? And then I can bring into dialogue other scholars who might agree with me or disagree with me and engage with them. Um, raising objections to claims I might be making, addressing questions they raise, 
and so forth. Um, yeah. And and sometimes, like for for example, the commentary that I'm doing now that I mentioned uh, on uh, Epictetus's handbook with my co-author, that's a very different situation because he and I have divided up the fifty what fifty two chapters of the handbook between us. So we're going to write mm-hmm. our initial drafts. And there have been other commentaries in English, uh, and a recent one I reviewed uh, a couple of years ago uh, in German on Epictetus's handbook. But I don't want to look at what others say in their commentary first, because I don't want it to unduly influence my approach. Hmm. So at this stage, having taught this text over and over again for many, many years— and having yeah. my own ideas about what I think needs to be clarified. I'm plunging in with my initial comments without reading what other scholars have said first. Yeah, good idea. And, and then, you know, I, I'm going to be having, you know, conversations with my co-author periodically um, so we can talk about, uh, you know, our approach and, you know, share ideas and so forth. So maybe, you know, once we get a draft of all the comments to all the chapters, then we can, you know, uh, trade them around. And he can, you know, our plan is that he will look at my comments and then he'll make revisions to what I've written and I'll do the same for what he's written. And then we can avail ourselves of what other commentators might have remarked and take that into account. Um, But only after we've gotten kind of our own take, the first sweep the first stab at our own commentary uh, approach down on on paper, or rather on the hard drives. Mm. Mm. It's um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that book too. It sounds like it's going to be very interesting. What um, what do you find like in the writing? What, what's the joy for you about writing? I try to enjoy the process because it's so easy to get caught up in the final product, yeah. right? I mean, you have a great sense of satisfaction and completion when mm. you finish the final draft and you send it off. And that is a milestone. And you should pat yourself on the back because, you know, it's getting to that destination requires a lot of steps, Um, but it's the same thing with traveling, right? I mean, I think it's, it's kind of unstoic to be always focused on destination, destination, destination. When are we going to get like, like you're a little kid in the back of the car, right? When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? Right. The impatience when, you know, the Stoics remind us that life itself, the, the flow of events, they're all processes, they have beginnings, yeah. middles, and ends, and they go on. And and even when you reach one end, then you don't, you know, if you're fortunate, you know, your your life doesn't come to an end. You finish one trip, or you make it to your destination, and then you go home, and then mm. you embark on another trip. So if you're always focused on the destination, you're missing out on 98% of the trip, yeah. right? So it's the process of getting there. And so... That's why I and this it takes a lot of patience and perseverance and reflection and kind of self-critical scrutiny about one's writing to learn that your first attempt at the sentence shouldn't be the last version. 
And it's okay that it's not. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in, in letting your mind flow with the argument on the page. If the words are coming, great. If, if you give a good sentence and another good sentence, that's great. And you get through a paragraph, that's great. But if you run into a snag, that's okay. Then you can go back to the beginning of the sentence or the paragraph or the section or the whole paper and start rereading it and polishing it up in revision. Yeah. And so there's this one paper I finished. Well, actually, I haven't submitted the final draft yet, but Lee, I did, I did something like four dozen versions of this paper. I wrote it and rewrote it and revised it and edited it and revised it and edited it again and again and again. And I had the luxury of input from the two editors of the volume that it's going to end up in. And so that's always welcome because you don't you can't always count on input from others in reading your stuff. You can share mm. your writing with your friends or ask someone to comment on it. Um, and sometimes they have time and sometimes they don't. Um, so I valued their input very much. But you have to have a thick skin and think in terms of, okay, how can I make this sentence better? Yeah. How do I make yeah. this paragraph read more smoothly, more clearly, more gracefully? Can I strengthen my argument here? And so... That's the kind of writing as process focus that I try to maintain, um, which allows me to make use of, you know, when you've got the momentum, keep it going, keep going forward. And then when you, when you kind of lose that momentum and you slow down, okay, then, then, yeah. you can, then you can step back and go back to square one or square five or wherever in the paper you want to go back to and try to get that running start again. Yeah, yeah. Cruel cries a lot of a lot of patience, I suppose. Do you find you you have a lot uh, or many unfinished um, pieces of work? Yes, yes. Yeah. I've got yes, I've got easily. Why is that? Is it because you sort of write and then you get to a point and then reread it and go, oh, you know what? Well, I'm done yeah. With it? It, just... it, it, sometimes it's different reasons for different papers. So you can get yeah. an idea for a paper, start working on it. And then COVID happened. So, for example, <laughs> I was supposed to present a paper way back in April in London. And I submitted uh, an abstract, a little summary, you know, kind of proposal for the paper. And it was accepted. And then it was, you know, a month or, you know, month and a half until I was supposed to leave on the trip. And then COVID meant no, no traveling. Yeah. And so I got the paper started, and I even solicited a little input from one of my colleagues, my co-author, in fact, Scott Aiken. Yeah. Great guy, knows a lot about stoicism, excellent epistemologist, great co-author um, and friend. Um, we got some good input from him, and I was encouraged by it. But then I didn't have the opportunity to present the paper, mm. and I had other projects that I had underway. So I guess... I mean, um, some people might not approach writing projects the way I do. I mean, I, I could see the value of working on one piece of writing from the beginning through the middle to the end until it's done, and then you move on to a new thing before, or, or rather, then you start a new thing. But with different conference opportunities and different invitations to contribute to a volume or to submit an abstract for approval, to be included in a volume, I tend to have multiple projects on going on at any one time. And especially with the bigger projects, the book projects, 
Yeah. If it's multiple chapters, you can't write, you can't work on all of them at the same time. You have to work no. on one little piece of this giant monster at a time. And you can, then you get an idea for a spinoff paper as you're working on chapter three. And then yeah. <laughs> you find some venue for publishing that, and then you bring that to an end. And then something else comes up. So I don't mind having uh, multiple projects unfinished because I know that um, another three months I'll be retired and I'll have no more teaching demands on my time and I'll be free to work on all of these projects I've started and not finished. And then once they're finished, I'll have a new project that will... And probably a whole bunch of others that haven't been finished. (laughs) Exactly. It's, It's part of that process. Yeah. The um the idea of having you know I, I guess trust in the process and well and finding joy in the process, um and not being so focused on destination all the time, but without destination or purpose, the the process is either missed or or not appreciated, or perhaps it's the wrong process. You're not enjoying it because you have no destination or purpose. Yes, exactly. And so the destination, yeah, you have to have the purpose. You have to de- have the destination for direction. Right. Are that two on the same thing, do you think, like purpose and destination? Um, I guess not. No, I, I would distinguish between the two. I mean, the, the hmm. purpose, if the purpose is to philosophize, because that's what I enjoy doing and I think it's valuable, and I want to share my philosophizing with others, then that means doing interviews and writing and publishing things. Hmm. But publishing... Uh, you know, you, you have to, you have to make the product. You can't just, you know, uh, you know, summon it. It doesn't just materialize. You've got to grab up your tools and chisel away at the rock until it becomes the sculpture that you want. And so if you're a sculptor, then your activity is sculpting. And so your, your goal is the finished sculpture, but in order to get there, you have to do the sculpting, which is the process. So if you enjoy, you know, so if you don't enjoy the process, then you're torturing yourself, right? Because then you're subjecting yourself to an ongoing activity that you don't enjoy intrinsically just to produce something, you know, that that would have value, yes. So it wouldn't be futile and it wouldn't be a useless activity, but it certainly wouldn't be enjoyable and certainly it wouldn't be as good, right? I mean, painters enjoy painting, they don't just enjoy having painted. Hmm. Once your once your canvas is full and you're and you're done, then yeah, you cannot. And but you know, somebody viewing the painting that isn't part of the painting process, right? That's what no. other people will do. And yeah. and getting it getting it hung in a in an art gallery, that's the art collector's job. That's not what the painter does when painting. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I, I guess if yeah, I mean, if you're not enjoying that process, there's there's Sorry, a great disconnect. Yeah. I was just saying, if you if you don't enjoy that process, there's obviously a great disconnect with then you, with uh, with your purpose and with your your goals. Yeah. You you've got to enjoy the activity, and the activity does have a purpose. And yeah. So I wonder if a lot of people missing that, but like just you know, in life, just not not really connecting with that idea of a process and and just going through life and. Perhaps that's a good sign to say. I mean, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe if there's nothing amiss, and you're just enjoying the the flow of life. Then that's okay. But um, I would feel that if there's a lacking of enjoyment for a process every day, 
then perhaps there's a lacking for joy in life in general. Yes, indeed. And, and that's another little pearl of wisdom that I've learned from the Stoics. They, they, they talk about um, what they call stochastic activities. A right. stochastic activity is one in which the activity itself is its goal. So dancing, right? If you're performing while you're, you know, the, the dance performance is the dancing. When you're dancing, you're doing, you know, that, that is the goal, to dance, it's yeah. only when the dance is over that the performance is over. You don't have a separate product separate from the dancing. Similarly for acting, right? If you're a thespian, acting in the play, on the stage, that is the goal. You don't have so a it's finished not, not finishing the, the not finishing the show, but right. doing the show. When the drama's over, you know, the acting's over. And you've already completed your, you've already fulfilled your purpose in mm. the acting. And so writing, you know, writing is different, right? So writing, painting, you know, building a, a building, you do have a separate artifact that results as a product from the activity. But the activity itself, yeah, if you, if you have the luxury of being able to perform the activity, wor- doing the work, working at, at an activity that you intrinsically enjoy – then yeah, you're gonna have a happy life. Then then it won't really be work for you. It'll be play, and philosophy yeah. at its best is playful that way. Yeah, you've you've written um, a fair few um, really insightful books, um, and you, you you talk about happiness as freedom in one of them. Um, and I just want to sort of create the connections here between the stoic, um, stoicism and and what is happiness from your research. Yeah. Yeah, that's my book on uh, Epictetus. That was a revised version of my my doctoral dissertation long ago. Yeah, Epictetus. So one thing that drew me to Epictetus in graduate school when I was deciding what to write my uh, dissertation on, my thesis, Mm. uh, was Epictetus' stoicism is just so candid. It is so frank and direct and refreshing. And he just totally glorifies freedom. He believes, and, and he was, you know, he's born into slavery, right? So his personal story is that of a slave. So he was mm. born the son of a slave woman, born into slavery, raised as a slave, treated as a slave. And there's some indication in the discourses that, you know, he was abused. He was mistreated as a slave. And that might've been why he was lame. That might've been the cause of him becoming lame, that he was, his leg was being twisted and tortured by his master. And he said to his master, if you keep twisting it, it'll break. And his master kept twisting his leg to, you know, punish him and torture him. And then there was a loud snap. And Epictetus said, I told you that would happen. Hmm. Right. I mean, wow, that's powerful stuff. So, so Epictetus's notion of freedom isn't the freedom to move around and go anywhere you want to or buy anything with you know endless amounts of wealth and exerting political power over others you know so it's yeah. not physical freedom to be able to travel and do whatever activity you want and no one can stop you his notion of freedom is freedom from Freedom, so in that sense, it's kind of negative freedom. It's freedom from anxiety, freedom from freedom from fear, freedom from anger, freedom from jealousy and resentment, 
freedom from all these negative emotions that make happiness impossible. So freedom, liberation, true liberation, true freedom for Epictetus means self-mastery, mastery of your mind, your, your desires, your appetites, your beliefs, yeah. and your judgments and decisions. So it's all about mental freedom. And you mm. might, your body might be owned by a master legally, um, but no one can own your mind. You have a yeah. kind of sovereignty and autonomy with regard to your beliefs, decisions, desires, choices, judgments, intentions that no one can take from you. Mm. So that's his conception of real happiness, is that kind of stoic self-mastery. Like a mental freedom. Yes. And that's where the practices um, come into play then to help us, you know, free ourselves from the negative implications of emotions or or things like that. Yes. So um, anger, right? Epictetus and Seneca say when you allow yourself to become angry Hmm. because somebody else does something or says something – to push your buttons and you allow that person to take away your calm, your, your mental serenity and fly into a rage and lash out. You're being manipulated by that other person. You are giving up, you are ceding to that person your mental life. You're letting them coerce you and manipulate you and push your buttons and push push around where your head's at, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so you're giving up that mental freedom that Epictetus and, and all the Stoics cherish. Um, you're letting them pull you around like you're a puppet on strings. Hmm. And so that's why anger, as, a, as the most violent and dangerous negative emotion— has to be eradicated. You have to take responsibility for your emotional reactions. And when somebody says something critical, and this is just classic. I just love this kind of way of thinking about it from Epictetus. Look, if somebody criticizes you, there are two possibilities. Either the system is true or it's false. If it's false, then that's like somebody saying two plus two equals seven. Why would you get upset? If somebody else says something false, hmm. right? The other option is that the other possibility is that what they say about you, that criticism is actually true, that, that they've put a finger on one of your failings or shortcomings, right? One yeah. of your errors, in which case you should own it. You should fess up and yeah. say, yes, you know what? That is a weakness of mine. And thank you for pointing it out. I'm going to work on it and try to get better. Yeah. So if the criticism is true, accept it and, you know, kick yourself in the butt and say, you know what, he's right. I need to do better. Thank Mm. you for correcting me. I was in the wrong and you've helped me. Or if what they say is false, then it's water off a duck's back and it wouldn't upset you at all. And it's nothing to take seriously. So either way, either way, dealing with criticism can be made very healthy and but being, being able to rationally think about it like that is, is probably a challenge yes. for a lot of people too yes 
Yes. Are there ways we can overcome that or it's just practice? Well, uh, you know, human beings have that ability. So if, if you've ever been able to check your anger when you feel yourself getting angry, then you've demonstrated to yourself that it's possible. Yeah. If, if a close friend gently, you know, offers, you know, a tough love sort of criticism and you've been able to recognize that he or she is telling you something true about you and they care about you and they want you to do better. And so they're not criti- they're not sharing that criticism of you to hurt you or, or drag you down or make you feel bad. They're doing it to help you. If you recognize that and you respond by taking it in the spirit in which it's offered as a constructive criticism, then guess what? If you can do that with a friend, you can do that with someone who's a mere acquaintance, who doesn't mm-hmm. know you well. And yeah. if you can do it with that person, you can do it with somebody who doesn't like you because either their criticism is true or false. If it's true, take it seriously. If it's a false, dismiss it. Yeah. So we, we can do this. Does it take practice? Yes. <laughs> Every day. Does it help to read Epictetus and be reminded of this and read Seneca and Marcus Aurelius? Yes, it helps. So avail yourself. But there's still practices. I mean, you've been studying Stoicism for how many years now and then oh, teaching goodness. it? Uh, 30 years teaching at Creighton and, you know, a couple of years before that at, at the University oh, yeah. of Pennsylvania working yeah. on my dissertation. So, I don't know, 33 years maybe. Are there any particular stoic philosophies or practices that you've, you've still challenged or are challenged on? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is challenging to remind yourself of the, the stoic truth, and I think it is true, that people do and say things uh, in the moment, in the belief that they're doing or saying something that they think they ought to do or say. That is to say, you know, nobody, you know, I I prefer to believe that nobody acts with genuine malice in the sense that they know that what they're doing is wrong and bad and they do it anyway. Now, people certainly act in selfish ways. People, you know, will hurt each other. You know, that, that does happen. But in the moment they're doing it, they, whether their belief is true or false, and their belief could be false, right, that they're either trying to protect themselves or protect something they're caring about or trying to achieve some goal that they think is good. And they might yeah. have a false belief about what goals are good and what aren't. Um, but they're doing the best they can to act on the basis of the beliefs they have. And so Epictetus reminds us, look, before you jump to criticizing other people, find out why they're doing what they're doing. Ask them what they think they're achieving. Ask them what they judge to be good and what they're trying to achieve as good in their behavior. Learn what their values are and what they care about. And if yeah. you see things from their point of view inside their skin, then when their perspective does differ from yours, you can understand it better. If you understand why people are doing what they're doing, then it's much easier to forgive their mistakes because you know that you make mistakes. And you know when you ask someone to forgive you for one of your mistakes – you know, you're saying, look, I screwed up. I admit it. Uh, you know, I'm not perfect. And so, golly, we've got to apply that, sta- that same understanding to other people, that mm. they'll make mistakes. Yeah. And again, that disempowers this, this little rage monster. 
inside of us where where we lose our temper and we you know you know we're driving your car and you and your your auto is cut off by someone well you don't know you know maybe they're rushing to an appointment and they are afraid they're going to be late or maybe that's just the habit that they've acquired because they're not good at managing their time you know mm. the the immediate having manner, that openness of mind but is 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 quite a challenge you know to it, to it think is. of things like that it it ta- it takes a lot of practice so it is is that saying people can practice or do you think some people are just wired that way i i think some people um I certainly think that it's easier for some people to put themselves in somebody else's place. Hmm. Some people are quite good at that. Other people are very more firmly anchored in their own skin, and they have a great difficulty seeing things from another person's point of view. But in relationships, you know, trust, open communication, these things are vital. Living with your neighbors, you know, people just aren't that different. People no. have the same general needs. And so the differences are what make human beings interesting. I mean, you know, thank goodness not everyone is exactly the same. Yeah. Right? It makes yeah, yeah. for a much more interesting world that there are lots of different ideas and preferences and likes and dislikes and tendencies and hobbies and, you know, religions and, you know, even, you know, beliefs. It's finding that common ground that ought to be ought to be possible it's not easy but you know people if they're willing to compromise and and search and be and be patient and listen right listen to other people Mm. what they think why they think it i mean this is why i enjoy being a philosophy professor so much i get these fresh faces every year and i get to read these great texts you know plato um aristotle and the stoics and these other authors that i like to teaching uh epicurus i get i get to read these materials these writings fresh with the students who are reading them for the first time and they get so excited and i can share my excitement with with these ideas these great ideas with them because they see things from a different point of view they have a different Mm. experience they're so much younger they were born into a very different world than i was a different decade by a long shot right yeah, And so they have different experiences that they bring to their philosophizing and their understanding, and they ask great questions. And I just get really energized when I'm able to speak with them about that. That's good, eh? yeah. And with, with this whole idea of, um, I suppose, happiness and freedom, what is the implications of finding pleasure in all of that? Because pleasure can't be a bad thing necessarily, but um, it certainly can disrupt the the mood, I suppose, of the mind. Yeah, well, I mean, here, here, I think we can definitely learn from the Epicureans because uh, they distinguish two different kinds of pleasure. One is dynamic and the other is static. So the dynamic pleasure is what you experience when you're hungry and you're eating. So you, you know, taste the food right. in your mouth and it's sweet, savory, mm-hmm. salty, or umami. And, uh, you know, you, you have the, the, the dynamic pleasure on your taste buds and palate and the mouthfeel of the food and whatnot or the drink, you know, drinking a yeah. cold, a cold Foster's, right, on a hot day, you know, enjoying <laughs> an ale, whatever. That's the dynamic pleasure. Having finished eating and no longer being hungry, that's the more static pleasure. 
And the Epicureans teach that that's the pleasure which is more stable and it's more lasting. Because once you've eaten and you've removed the pain of hunger, then your pleasure is an absence of pain. You've removed the pain from by eating, and then you're not full. And then you're you know you're full. You're satiated, and then you're not hungry anymore. Hmm. Now, the Epicureans, and I think rightly, observe that most of the trouble we run into with pleasure isn't the static pleasure, because after you've enjoyed eating your meal and you're content, then you can enjoy a different kind of dynamic pleasure of conversation, right? With your dining companions, hmm. you have a good conversation, you know, and that's not something that you're going to get. You're not in danger of overeating, you know, by over listening and over conversing, right? I mean, I suppose you can if you talk for a really, really, really long time. But um, <laughs> the much greater danger, of course, is the bodily pleasures, the bodily dynamic pleasures of eating too much, drinking too much. Right, overdoing it when it comes to those physical dynamic pleasures, mm. which is exactly why, you know, people who study, you know, physiology and and eating, tell you that, you know, as you're eating, if you eat slowly, you need you give yourself time to feel full. Whereas if you yeah. gobble your food down really really fast because you're just so hungry you can't get enough of it and you keep gobbling it as as you can, you're going to end up up your stomach before. Your body triggers to you that you've had enough to eat. Yes. And then you're going to overeat. And then you're going to feel what? Pain. And that pain is going to last until the food is digested. Yeah. So that static pleasure is not necessarily the problem. It's the, uh, the control of the dynamic pleasure intake. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And so similarly, the Stoics are going to say, yes, this is why Epictetus and, – and, and Epicurus agrees on this point as well, right? So Epicurus says, now, so you've got dynamic pleasure and static pleasure, but you've also got dynamic pleasure and static pleasure as two categories applied to two different aspects of your being. There's your body, and then there's your soul or mind. Hmm. And pain of the body can be mitigated by reminding yourself, so say you're going to the dentist, right? Yeah. While you're having your teeth drilled and scraped and, you know, even a root canal or whatever it is, right? You can tell yourself, okay, this is physically unpleasant, but I'm doing it because I need dental health and the dental hygiene, is the, the, the dentist will help me with that. And then once the procedure is over, then I'm done and the pain will be gone. Yeah. Once the Novocaine is worn off and I feel better, my mouth will feel normal again, it'll be okay. So you can tell yourself, right, this is unpleasant, but it's temporary and I can endure this and I'll be okay, right? So the mind can compensate for that temporary physical discomfort of the dynamic pain by thinking the right sort of way, in a therapeutic way. Hmm. So similarly, that's why the mental anguishes, the mental pain tends to be much worse. Because if you're living in fear, then you're really a slave. That's, that's Epictetus's central point that he emphasizes. If yeah. you're afraid and you're living in fear, you're going to be miserable. There's absolutely no way to enjoy mental, you know, the mental state of happiness if you're in fear, if you're angry, if you're resentful, if you're, um, you know, if you're, if you're hateful, right? You're going to be miserable. Yeah. 
You're going to be miserable. And so the mental anguish, the the negative mental thoughts, the negative mental judgments, the false mental beliefs, right? And the emotions that, that flow from those false beliefs and false judgments, those are going to cause a kind of anguish that you can't escape because nowhere, you're never going to be able to go anywhere to get that mental freedom if you can't achieve it for yourself. Whereas, you know, if you step on a thorn, okay, that hurts. You can pull the thorn out and bandage your foot, right? But the mental anguish of living in fear of always stepping on something sharp every time you walk, that would be totally paralyzing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so much harder harder work to get rid of those anguishes too, but I guess through philosophy and practices and uh, therapy and things like that, certainly we can overcome those. That's right. And and yeah. having like-minded friends that remind us of our, you know, stoic techniques and stoic therapies. Yeah. So you can draw from your friends to help you. You've got you've got your teachers and mentors whether they're, you know, in the classroom with you or they're authors who you're reading that are helping you. Um, and you can avail yourself of that. And it does it does take work. And and this is I mean this is a common knock against the stoics that the kind of mental freedom they describe is so difficult to achieve. I hear this from my students all the time. Oh, it's so hard. You have to have self-discipline. You have to work at it. You know, is it even possible for human beings? Well, I mean, it it does seem to be possible to make progress. You're not going to be a perfect Stoic sage all the time. But the Stoics themselves recognize that, yeah, it takes a lot of work. Not on the basis, not, not in terms of days or weeks or months, but over the span of years, if you rehearse these stoic techniques over years and you're making progress, you get angry less often. You suffer yeah. from fear and anxiety about work or about the economy or politics or whatever it is, yeah. climate change, right? Whatever it is. If you're able to cope better with those anxieties and you have fewer fears, fewer worries, and you get angry less often, and you're more forgiving of people and more understanding and more patient, right? if you can see yourself making progress, you will experience a happier life. Will it be perfectly yeah. happy all the time? No, because you're not perfect. You're not a sage. Hmm. But if you're making progress toward, again, that destination, that goal. Yeah. And that's how you're going to encourage that, more of it. More of that's the same. an accomplishment. Yeah. Hmm. And if you've made yeah. progress in the past – then you've got reason to be confident you can make more progress in the future. Yeah, I like it. Mate, there's probably a lot more we can go into. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it too. Uh, you've got a lot of work and, and bits and pieces out there, articles, etc. people can tap into. Is there a best place uh, for people to reach you? Um, the, the easiest way to tap into um, my, my, my books and, and publications is my website. WilliamOStevens.com. William, I'll stick the link in the show notes, guys, so you can check it out at thehiddenwire.com too. But WilliamOStevens.com. Dot com. That would be great, Lee. Thank That'd you. Be the links and, and I'd be there. happy. I'd be happy to talk to you again in the future. Love talking about stoicism. Let's let's do it. Yeah, mate. It's been a fantastic conversation. I'm sure there's a lot more we can go into. So we'll do a round two at some stage down the track. Excellent, excellent. Thanks so much for the opportunity, and thanks to all of your listeners. Yeah, and guys, check it all out at thehiddenwire.com as always. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. 
Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon